Let's kick off another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, a retired broadcaster. Ron, we talk about investing and financial literacy on this show. A lot of people use investment firms to execute these plans. So let's take a look at that particular industry. And it's it's a big one, isn't it? There's a lot of moving parts with your average investment firm. They're into wealth management, which means that they'll take on clients and manage their money for a fee. If uh, you're a corporate client and you need to raise capital, they can do that through new issues. They'll sell those uh, stocks and preferreds and bonds to the public. They also have their own trading desks, so they trade stocks, bonds, futures, crypto, fixed income for their own accounts, and they, they also sell it to investors. Uh, they're involved in mergers and acquisition consulting. They do conventional loans, and they even have research departments. So there's a lot of different pools of profitability that these companies have. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at uh, a small segment of those because in Canada, it's hard to find firms that are pure plays. These are usually you know, tied to the back, banks, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you go back to 1987, 1988. Uh, Wood Gundy, for example, is owned by CIBC. McLeod Young Weir, which I worked for uh, back in the early 80s, was absorbed by Scotia Bank. And so, most of the big investment firms uh, have been absorbed by the banks. So we want to look at independence because banks are so big that usually the investment arm is a, is a side business for them. And we want to try and look at some of the in, independence because when markets are rocking, uh, these sectors can really coin a lot of money. And one of our goals on this show has always been to give you a complete education. We talk about ETFs, we talk about funds, we go through each sector of the economy and hopefully go through sectors that uh, you don't have a lot of exposure to. We talk about tax, we talk about estate and retirement planning. We try to cover all the bases. So uh, one of the things we do on an ongoing basis is look at individual sectors of the economy, and that's where we're at today. Okay, so we're talking investment firms, and and if you want to make a play in this particular sector, let's talk about the upsides of doing that. Well, the upside is that investment firms can make uh, money from advisory services, new issues, proprietary trading for their own accounts, wealth management, and the list goes on and on of all the things they've got their finger into, like crypto, stocks, and private equity, and options, and futures, and options lending, precious metals, real estate. I mean, they really cover almost the entire universe of of investable assets. And uh, they do best when interest rates and inflation are steady and um, also when they're falling. And they like it when markets are rising, obviously. And because they use leverage other people's money, uh, they can magnify those returns in good markets so that the returns can actually be exceptional. And they do their best when the investment public is enthusiastic and we see lots of trading volume because uh, they buy and sell and often take small spreads in between and they can make a lot of money just on uh, the huge volumes that that pass by their doorstep every day. I would think given the current climate, that might not be the case right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's been a tough time for some of these companies, and uh, that's one of the reasons we're looking at covering them right now, Gord, is because, you know, some of the downsides, for example, when asset prices are dropping, they often lose money. When trading volumes dry up, they lose money uh, because they can leverage their return, can also amplify their losses, and a lot of the profit of these companies uh, can get funneled off to management and leave less for shareholders. And um, virtually all these things are taking place right now. There's not a, a ton of profitability uh, that we're seeing and especially expected to be seeing over the next six months as things slow down. Uh, these players are very, very sensitive to those uh, downside factors that I mentioned. And so, you know, we can see some incredible weakness, but that's one of the reasons we're doing the show right now is we'd like to try and if we see a sector that we think uh, can provide uh, some upside over the next six months to a year, uh, we try to give you information on that sector before it starts to turn and go up. So you've got some of the tools and maybe some examples that you can do some of your own study uh, to take advantage of this when some of the markets turn. Okay, so if we're looking at independence, let's take a look at some of the major players. And and the the name right at the top of that list is one I'm sure a lot of people would recognize, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, Goldman Sachs has been around since 1869. So they're essentially the granddaddy in the industry, and they're a true giant with global reach. Uh, they deal with individuals. They deal with large corporations. They deal with um, governments. They also deal with uh, big international uh, agencies, the UN, that are involved in, in financing. So these guys really have global reach. Uh, the symbol is GS. They trade in the U.S. Their price-to-earnings ratio is 14. They yield 3.6%. And as of uh, when I looked at this recently, their five-year return in the stock price, even with things settling down is still 41%. So uh, they've got a good dividend, and uh, their price appreciation has been pretty good. What about Morgan Stanley? That's another big player south of the border, isn't it? Yeah, they're essentially, a lot of people think they've taken the mantle as, as the world's preeminent uh, independent in investment player. Morgan Stanley symbols MS, their PE's 13. they got a great yield of 4.6%. The five-year return on their stock is 66%. Uh, they were founded in 1924 in New York, and they're here again. They're involved in advisory, trading, underwriting, wealth management. They've got their fingers in a lot of pies. Here in Canada, Canaccord Genuity, they've been around for a while now. <laughs> yeah, Canaccord Genuity, symbol CF, they trade on Toronto. The PE's 11, the yield's 4.7%. Um, the return on the stock price is so-so. Uh, it's up 10% in the last five years. They've got wealth management and capital markets operations. They're a little smaller. They're in Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Australia. And so they do have some diversification. But they are a Canadian company. One that we see, and they pop up every once in a while on a television ad, is Raymond James. Yeah, Raymond James, RJF. They trade in New York. Their PE is 12. Their yield is 1.6%, but their five-year return on their stock price is 96%. Uh, RJ, as they're called, is primarily in wealth management, so they don't do a lot of the other things 
many of the brokerages do. So they restrict their opportunity to wealth management, which is far less volatile because they have $1.3 trillion with 8,700 advisors and 37 or 3,000 plus locations, and they charge a fee for managing that money. So their income actually is far more stable than some of the others which are involved in trading and other things. So, you know, if you're looking at getting some exposure to the sector and you don't want a lot of volatility, companies that are involved in, in primarily wealth management are probably going to be safer for you. That, those numbers, that, that almost looks like a franchise operation, is it? Um, I, like I, if you open I a Raymond James location, is that, or is it just a satellite office, I guess? They're generally a satellite office because uh, in the investment industry, you have what's called compliance. And so you have compliance officers that uh, look at the trading and and uh, positions of virtually everyone that is looking after money in the firm. And so they have to keep a fairly firm grip on that because if they don't, it can very easily spiral out of control and you get a couple of rogue managers that uh, can cause a lot of damage to a company's reputation and also their balance sheet. So uh, they, they, they stay on top of, of things pretty closely because the regulators are right behind the breathing on their neck. So they try to make sure that, that um, they have uh, really good controls in place to manage, well, like I say, $1.3 trillion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. Okay, so what would be the strategy if we want to dip our toe in these waters? Well, these are trading stocks and not generally buy and hold. I mean, if you have a company primarily in wealth management, they're a lot more stable, but most of them are trading stocks. You buy them when economic conditions and investor sentiment turn positive, which we're obviously not there right now, and you sell them when the economic outlook and investor sentiment uh, turn negative. So when they've had a good run, take some profits on these things. And you want to buy them when they're cheap, just when the economy is starting to turn. You know, uh, when you go through, it looks like you're going through a rough, a rough period, that's probably not the, not the time to, to take ownership of these things. Okay, so there you go. The investment business, the firm's involved therein of an independent nature, something for you to chew on. And as Ron said, if if the market sentiments should start to shift over the next few months, might be a good play for you. Ron, we have a series of questions that have come our way. We always invite our listeners to drop us a note at letsmakemoney.ca or through cfcw.com. So let's get to some questions here. I've heard in one or two places that you should have no fixed income from any government in your portfolio. This leads to my question. Have either of you divested your portfolio of government fixed income. I have not. I would I would just put that up there for full disclosure. I have not. And I haven't either. And so I really think it depends on which particular government you're referring to. I mean, obviously, Argentina, Greece, Russia, China, not so much. I don't want yeah. all their bonds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> if you believe that the Canadian government is about to implode financially, uh, then you should not own government bonds. I mean, over the last decade, our fiscal responsibility hasn't been great, but we're still in, uh, I think the classic term is, is we're the cleanest dirty shirt or one of the cleanest dirty shirts in the laundry. So I own some GICs that I bought from major banks where that have yields over 5% because they have CDIC insurance, and uh, they're ultimately backed by Canadian depositors insurance, which is an arm of the government. 
I also have been a big buyer of uh, investment-grade corporate bonds. So that's where, in my bond portfolio, that's where a good chunk of my money is. And it's in, it's in bonds that are issued by companies like Canadian Pacific, Canadian Natural, uh, Canadian uh, or CN, you know, the big railroads I own. I own bonds issued by uh, banks. I own bonds issued by insurance companies. I own bonds issued by utilities. Pretty, so I pretty reliable. Real, yeah, pretty reliable. Yeah, the real, real reliable stuff. So uh, that's that's a, a lot of my fixed income because right now you're looking at 55 to 6.5% on this stuff. We haven't seen yields as high in a long time. So I think it's a good time to be in bonds. Um, like I say, I would be very cautious uh, and look very carefully at the credit rating of any bond that you wanted to own. I think that credit ratings in Canada and the U.S. are, are going to get worse. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautious on the bond side, especially if they get a down, uh, credit downgrade. But no, I have not uh, sold all my, my government bonds because I tend to buy government bonds that have either a double or triple A credit rating, so I'm not particularly worried right now. Okay, question number two. Love the show and have followed it for years. I would like to know the difference between GICs and bonds. Tax-wise, is there an advantage? Which is safer? Well, GICs are issued by financial institutions. They have terms up to five years and are usually non-cashable. In other words, if you buy one, you've got to hold it to maturity before you sell it. Uh, they often have Canadian Depositors Insurance, which guarantees you your principal back up to 100000 if the institution fails. And so if there is a, a, an investment note that's issued by your financial institution, the first question you always want to ask is, does it have CDIC insurance? And generally, if it doesn't, I pass. Bonds can be guaranteed by the three levels of government, so they're not just issued by financial institutions. They're introduced by... Uh, municipal, provincial, and federal government in Canada, um, international governments can issue them, and corporations. They can have terms from as little as a couple months to 100-plus years. The advantage is that there's an aftermarket for them, and they can be bought and sold. So if they're good quality, they have liquidity. The tax on the interest is the same both on bonds and GICs, so that's where they're similar. Sometimes bonds can be bought at a discount to the maturity value. And so outside of the RSP, that's the area that I'm particularly interested. You buy bonds that, for example, paid 1% or 2%. Those bonds are trading at $0.80 cents on the dollar sometimes. So if you buy them at $0.80 cents on the dollar and they're guaranteed to mature at $0.10 cents on the dollar, part of your return is going to be the appreciation as the bond moves upward. So you can get a capital gain, which ta is taxed at half the rate of interest. So discount bonds are a very, very good buy right now, and they usually get to be a good buy when interest rates have gone up uh, spectacularly, and there's lots of old bonds around with very low rates. They get discounted dramatically, and so they're very, very good things to buy. Also, on the, um, on the bond side, because uh, GICs can only go for five years, if rates go up and you want to, you're retired, for example, and you want to lock in these good rates because you're afraid that uh, rates are going to go down, well, uh, you can lock in for a lot longer than a five-year term and uh, have your income virtually guaranteed. So that's some of the major differences between um, GICs and bonds. And whether they're safer, well, if a GIC has CDIC insurance, 
or you buy a Government of Canada bond, uh, they have about the same protection. Okay, we have a question here about a fund that we've mentioned at times over the years. Uh, As a strategy, I'm wondering if you would place the PIMCO monthly income fund, which is an ETF, within the same category as the bond funds mentioned. Well, the PIMCO monthly income fund trades as an exchange-traded fund. In other words, it trades on the stock exchange. It also trades as a mutual fund. I happen to own the PIMCO monthly income mutual fund, not the ETF. But uh, PIMCO can be bought and sold on a stock exchange if you have the ETF. Mutual funds are uh, returned to the company for sale or redemption. So the company gives you your money back, whereas if you sell it on the market, uh, you find someone else who, who buys it off you, essentially. So, yes, they're equivalent with a very few subtle differences. Okay, last question. You, are, you always insert some comments about market dynamics. Have you already discussed de-dollarization? And I think we're referring here to probably the U.S. dollar, aren't we? Or Yeah, mostly the U.S. dollar. People are concerned that uh, there's a lot of countries that really dislike the uh, U.S. Hegemon- hegemony, which is the U.S. sticking their nose in everybody else's business and uh, essentially being the one superpower since after World War II. And uh, they would like to get rid of the fact that the U.S. is able to embargo them and that most things trade in U.S. dollars and that they need U.S. dollars basically to survive. And people that worry that if uh, enough countries decide they're not going to use the U.S. dollar, uh, that the U.S. dollar will crash. Well, I've heard this story since I started uh, in the industry in the very early 80s that it, it was eminent. Well, it hasn't been eminent so far. And you're, the countries that are pushing to change the status quo are Russia, China, and Iran. And uh, they're actively pushing for settlement of trading goods and other currencies. But you look at Russia, China, and Iran. A little uh, bit of, little bit of little uncertainty bit of, there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, who wants to, do you want to really own one or rubles? And uh, if they opened up to full convertibility, in other words, people could buy and and sell their currencies without restrictions, uh, they're terrified because most of the people would rush out to the exits and try to get their money in other things. And so it would mean that their currencies would collapse. So stable currencies require a stable government, a strong military. Now, the U.S. uh, right now politically is a bit of a gong show. I I will uh, admit that. But they still have the strongest military in the world, and there's people lined up to get in. You notice that nobody's lined up to get into China. Nobody's lined up to get into Russia. I, I haven't seen long lines at the borders of people dying to get into Iran or any of these other places that want to replace the currency. So where people want to live is also where they want to put their money. And as long as the American uh, dollar is the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry, that will continue. And there's going to be problems, and the U.S. has big problems. I'm not discounting any of them. But, you know, where else are you going to go? That's the thing. So uh, I don't discount the fact that, you know, there's more and more uh, oil being traded in other currencies because Russia and Iran uh, have been embargoed. But, you know, For the bulk of the world, where else are they going to go? That really is what it boils down to. So I think over time, 
other currencies will come along and replace, but I don't think it's anything that's going to happen overnight. I just it seemed to remember reading something within the last couple of weeks. I still read all the time, even though I don't need to. I'm not working anymore, but well, you know, I'm still fascinated by this stuff. I read something about Ryan, and didn't the ruble take another real blow to the nose here shortly, just short time ago? I think it. it yeah, fell the again. ruble yeah. is 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 taking it on the chin. It's taken a while for the combined effects of the embargoes and the fact that you know Russia is spending a on this uh, war, and I think its uh, its economy is like one fifteenth or one twentieth. I think the Russian economy is is I think someone compared it to the size of Alabama's. Uh, so the Russians don't have a massive economy, and they're spending enormous amounts of money. They've had $300 billion worth of capital frozen, and a lot of industries uh, can't supply them with, with basic materials. So uh, Russia's got problems, and of course, there again, you want to own rubles. Anybody that owns rubles is trying to sell them. That's why the currency's going down. So there you go, rounding it all up, and we thank you for your questions. And if you have one, drop it to us, letsmakemoney.ca. We're back again next week with another installment of Making Money. And, Ron, we want to take a look at Europe. A lot of people, you know, maybe it's a little foreign to them. They don't maybe necessarily invest over there. They stick to Canada or the U.S., but the European market is one to consider, is it not? Yeah, and a listener asked if we could talk about the investment environment in Europe. So here again... Uh, if you give us a question, you know, sometimes it can take us a little while to do the research because we're only a two-man operation. We're not like some of the podcasts out there that have uh, their own production studios. They have five or six people doing research for them. Uh, you know, we're basically a two-man band. So what you see is what get you around. get. <laughs> yeah, what you see is what you get. So if you give us a little bit of time, if you ask a question so that we can do the topic justice. We'll get back to you. We'll do a show, and uh, hopefully we'll give you lots of insights on um, one of the big advantages, I think, of this show is that Gord always asks uh, very important questions about what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages. And so typically when you hear someone talking head, talking on one of the, the, the big networks, they're always trying to sell, sell you an idea, so they talk about the advantages. But they don't talk about the downside, and we try to do both of that to give you a balanced picture of some of these areas you're probably looking at making uh, or putting some of your hard-earned money into. Okay, so back next week. Hope you can join us for Making Money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.